And if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it to 1 Samuel 26 and 27. We'll be in both of those chapters this morning. Now last week I told you a little story about uh, my son's basketball team and kind of some drama that happened uh, a few weeks ago at a game. Well, his season came to a conclusion just this last week. He was in the playoffs, his team was in the playoffs um, with a conf- within a conference of other teams who had a similar record to his. And uh, the game started and we were hopeful that, hey, maybe this could be the first win of the season here in the playoffs. And it's a one and done playoff. So single elimination, you lose and you're out. But things didn't go very well the first half. So that by halftime, his team was down by, I think it was 16 points. But then the second half started and the team just started to click. Everything was going right. The defense was locked down. They weren't allowing the other team to penetrate and score. And they were, our team, Jamie's team, was shooting great shots, taking high percentage shots, and they were going in. Everything was clicking. And they forced overtime. They came back all the way from the 16-point deficit to force an overtime. The game ended, well, the regulation ended in a tie, and then overtime came along. And things stopped clicking. (laughs) And they did lose that game. But man, it was a fun game. And it was fun to see that team come together. And for all things to just come together and work the way they're supposed to work, right? Work the way they've been practicing for them to work. And to see some of how that comes about and the fruition of that. We can actually do this. They tied up this other team and forced an overtime. And isn't that kind of the way life goes sometimes? You've probably had days when things are going great and everything is clicking and firing on all cylinders. You're walking strong with the Lord. Your marriage is going well. Your kids seem to be responding to your leadership. Your career is taking off and things are on the right track. And then there are days when things are absolutely terrible. Your walk with the Lord feels like more of a crawl. You and your spouse aren't seeing eye to eye on anything and you're ready to give up on your kids. You have to remind yourself that your children are gifts from God (laughs) and things at work are off the rails. You ever had a day like that? Well, hopefully you can be encouraged that you're not the only one that has those days. I think we all have days that are mountaintop experiences where everything seems to be going right. And then we have days that we're down in the valley, where nothing is going right. We've all had them. And you know what? David also had those kinds of days. And I think we're going to see those days here in these two chapters. In chapter 26, David is high up on the spiritual mountaintop. He seems to be utterly in tune with what God is doing in his life. He's walking by faith into the unknown with certainty that no matter what happens, God is in control. And then, in chapter 27, all of that seems to come crashing down. And David is in a time of spiritual darkness. That certainty that he had in his heart that God is in control of his life has flown out the window. He doesn't seem to be any longer walking by faith. Instead, he's crawling Maybe he's actually even taking a couple of steps back in his walk of faith. 
Again, in chapter 26, we see David walking in faith. Do you remember, though, back in chapter 24, David had Saul at an advantage in that cave? He could have killed him with one thrust of the sword, and all of his problems would have been solved because Saul was there, vulnerable and unprotected. But David didn't kill Saul because he trusted God to deal with him. Well, in chapter 26, we see almost an identical scenario, although it's not in a cave, it's on a hill. So if you look at verse 3 of chapter 26, it says that Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. And his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Now, just like in chapter 24, David again has Saul at an advantage. He could kill him if he wanted to. Actually, if you skip down to verse 12, it says that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the entire army. So again, David has the perfect opportunity to kill Saul and solve all of his problems and get away scot-free. And this is what his friend Abishai tells him in verse 8. He says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Let me do it. I only need one shot at it, David. And so now we come to a point where what David believes in his heart about who God is, what he has done, and his promises, will he keep his promises? What David believes will inform what he does. And again, that's true of all of us. Why do you do what you do? Do you know why? Because of what you believe. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in your heart, the things that you believe come out in your life. What you believe about God comes out in how you live. What you don't believe about God comes out in how you live. That's true of all of us, and it's true of David here, and that's really what we see in these chapters, how what David believes about God informs what he does in his life, his actions, the things he says and does. Belief and actions are intimately connected and I hope to show that to you this morning so what David believes about God is going to inform what he does as it concerns Saul and the rest of his life so what does David believe well if you recall again back to the cave incident in chapter 24 you'll remember that David believes that God will solve the Saul problem right God made Saul king and God will remove Saul as king furthermore God promised that he would make David king, and David believed that God would be faithful to keep that promise. Now, in chapter 26, we see that even though David is presented with another golden opportunity to kill Saul and to take the throne, he still believes those same things. 
Verse 23 of chapter 26, David says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. David still believes that God is faithful to his promises and that he should live his life in such a way that is faithful to God's righteousness and his faithfulness. And then verse 4, we read this earlier, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David believes that his life is precious in God's sight and that God will deliver him from the hand of Saul and all of the trouble that this has brought him. I've said before that this period in David's life of being on the run from Saul actually lasts about 10 years. And by the time of this episode here in chapter 26, we're at about year 7 or 8 of David's life in exile. And for all that time, God has counted David's life as precious and has rescued him and has been his refuge to him multiple times. And David believes that. He believes that God will continue to be that refuge and rescue for him. So now the question becomes, based on what David believes, what will he do? Let's go back up to verse 8 where it says that Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. So that's the request. Now based on what David believes about God, how will he answer? Verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. You see what's happening? Because David believes that God will solve his Saul problem and bring him to the throne, he forbids Abishai from killing Saul. And notice why he does this, because he believes that God will take care of Saul, either by striking him personally, or allowing him to die in battle, or just letting him die of natural causes, maybe old age or some other illness. But David's ultimate conclusion is, I will not kill Saul, because God will do that one way or another. Because God has made some promises to me. God has promised to keep me safe from Saul. I don't need to take care of it. God will. God has promised to make me king. I don't need to take care of that. God will. So David knows that it's not his place to kill Saul, but rather to trust that God will do it in his own time and in his own way. So rather than kill Saul, he simply takes Saul's spear and the jar of water that was next to his head, and he uses those two items to once again show Saul how he held his life in his hands and chose to spare him because he trusted the Lord to decide between the two of them. If you read verse 13 through the end of the chapter, you'll see kind of the conversation that David has with Saul about that very topic. And David concludes that conversation by telling Saul that he is trusting God with his life, so his decision to not kill Saul is a result of that trust. Again, verse 23 and 24, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, For the Lord gave you into my hand today. 
but I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Why? Because, behold, as your life is, was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And that's how they leave it. And then Saul goes his way, and David goes his, and actually David and Saul will never come face to face again after this little episode. But what I think we're meant to see is that David's actions are based on what he believes. David's walk of faith wasn't just some mental ascent or a spiritual exercise, but it translated into his real life. His actions and his deeds and how he lived were determined by what he believed. And since he was believing God's faithfulness to his promises, he lived his life in accordance with what he believed. And the reason I want to accentuate that point so strongly is that in the very next chapter, we see David doing kind of the opposite of what he did in chapter 26. So turn to chapter 27 now. And rather than walking in faith, David seems to be walking in doubt. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love seems to be where David is wandering. Remember those mountaintops and those valleys that we go through spiritually and emotionally that really impact our physical lives? Well, in chapter 26, I think David is up on the mountaintop. I am trusting the Lord with my very life. And in 27, he kind of comes down from that mountaintop like an avalanche all the way down into the valley. So look at chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What? Keep going. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistine. What? Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now the question is, what does David believe here? It seems to me that he has had a lapse of faith. What does he say? Now I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. What? No, you won't, David. Remember? I mean, God is your fortress and your refuge. You've been on the run by this time for seven or eight years, and your life has been threatened more times than we can count. And every time, God has rescued you. Now you shall one day certainly perish by the hand of Saul? And plus, if Saul did get to David or, and kill or capture him or whatever, then how is God going to make David king? God wouldn't be able to be faithful to his promise if he allowed Saul to kill David. And certainly that can't happen because if Saul was killed by, or David was killed by Saul, then God wouldn't be faithful to his promise. His promise would be void. So David is having some kind of blind spot in his faith here where he forgets that God has preserved him for seven or eight years already and is still promised to be the king of Israel, but now he feels that he needs to take circumstances into his own hands. This is what David apparently has come to believe, that if he's ever going to be free of Saul, he's going to have to take matters into his own hands and run away. And again, this is in the face of years' worth of evidence that God will preserve and protect him in his home country. Nevertheless, David leaves Israel and goes to the city of Gath. David reacts to what he believes by living out his beliefs. 
In this case, he feels that he needs to take measures into his own hands. Maybe I can't really trust God, so I've got to do something about it. And so he flees to Gath. And guess what? It works. It works. Saul stops looking for him. Verse 4 says that when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. It works. David's plan works. When he takes control, his walking in doubt actually leads to what he sees as beneficial results. Saul stops looking for him. And isn't, it that, isn't that the way it is when we fall into a lapse of faith? Sometimes it does provide relief, oddly enough. Although it's always, always only a temporary relief. Because you and I are just fallible, mortal human beings. We have no way to change the world or change our, even our own lives in any substantive, meaningful, or permanent way. We might be able to change our circumstances for a while, but guess what? Your problems are going to follow you. And that's true for David. This whole running away to Gath is not a final solution for him. And plus, when we take control over our circumstances and we walk in doubt, it is always, always, always going to lead us to other bad things. And this is exactly what happens with David. Because remember, what we believe determines what we do. If we are believing that God will keep his promises to us, we will live our lives in such a way that shows that we are trusting in God. And the opposite is true. If we are disbelieving God, that is going to influence, it's going to play out in our lives. And in chapter 26, David believed God's protection and provision for him, so he spared Saul's life yet again. And in chapter 27, David has a lapse in faith, so he acts like a man who isn't believing God, and this leads him to go to the Philistines. He goes to the Philistines in the city of Gath, the king of which has seemed to warm up to him a little bit since last time he was there. And David figures, uh, excuse me, the king figures that even though David is an Israelite, well, he's Saul's enemy, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? This guy's name is Ahish, the king of Gath, and he believes that David has defected from Israel and that now he wants to fight for the Philistines. You remember the last time David was in the city of Gath? He went there to again seek refuge from Saul, and the people recognized him. They said, wait a minute. This guy is David. He's the guy who's killed thousands and thousands of our own people. Let's get rid of him. But then David acts crazy. He goes before the king, and the king says, I don't need any more crazy people in my kingdom. Get him out of here. So David escapes. Well, this time, David comes to Gath under a totally different pretense. He comes as a defector, someone who has left his own country and who now wants to ally himself with his enemies against his home country. So this time, King Ahish welcomes David to Gath and even gives him and his men their own city to live in. But it's all a ruse. None of it is true. David hasn't really defected from Israel, and he has no desire to fight against his own people. It's all a ruse to deceive Ahish so David can hide away from Saul. Remember, again, what David does comes from what he believes. And so he's run away to the, to the Philistines because his faith that God will preserve and protect him has lapsed, and now he finds himself lying and scheming in order to keep the ruse going. But he's going to have to do more than just that. If he wants to keep this ruse going, he's going to have to fight for the Philistines. Look at verse 8. It says, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Berzites, and the Amalekites. 
For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Now, do you see what's happening here? In order to maintain the ruse that he had defected from Israel to Gath, David needs to fight to prove his worth. And so he goes on these raids. And when he goes on the raids, he goes against non-Israelite cities that were located technically within the official boundaries of Israel. But when he'd come back to Achish, he told him he was actually raiding Israelite cities in order to maintain this deception. And also, in order to maintain the deception, David had to be particularly brutal in his fighting. It says that he left no one alive, just in case one of the survivors ever got back to the king of Gath and said, we're not Israelites. Yeah, David came and killed us, but he's not, he's not after Israelites, he's after us. And so then David's lie would be exposed. So David had to kill excessively in order to keep up with his lie. Remember, what you do is based on what you believe. And if you believe that God either doesn't or won't keep his promises, that can lead you to some dark places. I think that's what we see here with David, going to some dark places because he's wandering around, I think, on that path of disbelief. Now, there are a few things I think we need to say about David's mountaintop and low valley experiences in these two chapters. First, although David did seem to go up and down in his faith and his subsequent walk with the Lord, I'm not saying that David fell away from the faith or that he totally turned his back on God. What I am saying is that I think David suffered one of those lapses in faith that is common to all of God's people. We all go through times like this. And let me also say that it's not sinful to be down in the valley, to sometimes have feelings of hopelessness or despair. In fact, if you read through the Psalms, you will hear a lot of despair and anguish in David's voice. Take, for instance, Psalm 10, verse 1. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13, verse 1. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And you know what? Scripture never condemns David for feeling spiritually down in the dumps. And that's something you should probably hear too. If you have some of those low valley faith experiences, you're not the first, you won't be the last, you're not the only one. In fact, you have good company with King David, the man after God's own heart. It's not sinful to feel spiritually down in the dumps. But it's when we take matters into our own hands 
and we act on those feelings that we start to get into trouble. And that's what I think David did. He had the feelings, and he acted on those feelings, which led to his lapse of faith, which even produced even more bad judgments. I think that the man after God's own heart had a lapse of faith, and he acted on it, and it didn't lead him to good places. So if you've ever had a lapse of faith like that, you can take comfort in in the fact that you're not alone. Even a man after God's own heart had the same kind of struggles that you do. And God's grace and goodness pulled David up out of that lapse of faith, and it can pull you up and out of it too. But if you take anything from this message today, I hope you take this. What you believe determines what you do. You will act and live according to what you believe. If you believe the promises of God, you will live into that belief. Your life will take on the characteristics of someone who believes God. You will do and say things that demonstrate that you are trusting in God. You will come across your greatest enemy who seeks your life and say to yourself, it is not my place. I'm trusting the Lord to deal with this. And if you doubt the promises of God, you will live into that disbelief. Your life will take on the characteristics of someone who does not believe God, and you will do and say things that demonstrate that reality. So let's play that concept out just a little bit. Do you believe that God will provide for all of your needs according to his riches and glory? If so, then how will you live? I would think that you would have less worry in your heart less anxiety about how your needs will be met. And if you don't believe that God will provide for you, then you're probably going to be worried. You're going to be scared. You're going to be obsessed with money and finances. Of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise about money, but if we believe that God will provide, it should change how we live. If you have a struggling marriage, do you believe that God wants your marriage to be healthy? If you believe that, you will do things that demonstrate your belief. You will put time into your marriage. You will honor your spouse, even if they're not very honorable. You will serve your spouse. You will do the things that make for peace because you believe that God wants your marriage to flourish. If you don't believe that God wants your marriage strong and healthy, then you're probably not going to put too much time or effort into it. What you believe will determine what you do. Or we could flip that around a little bit and ask, what does what you do and how you live say about what you believe? Maybe you struggle with a particular sin. What are you believing that makes that sin such an issue? Did you know that the Holy Spirit has promised to come alongside you and to help you battle the sin in your life and to ultimately give you victory over it? Are you living like a person who believes that? Are you regarding your sin like a conqueror, like someone who is about to claim victory over his sin? Or does your sin keep getting the better of you time and time and time again? What do you believe about your sin. If you're a Christian and we're still walking and growing in Christ, and certainly we're all still struggling with sin, and the Bible tells us we'll be struggling with it till the day we die. 
But the Holy Spirit promises to come alongside us and give us victories, little tiny victories, one at a time over our sin throughout our life of walking with Jesus. Sometimes, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I have to ask myself, what do I believe? Do I really believe that God will give me victory over this sin? Because if I do, then why am I losing so much? John Piper, who many of you know, was asked one time, what makes you doubt God? What makes you have a lapse of faith like David has here in chapter 27? Do you know what he said? He said, I doubt God when I look at myself and I still see all of this sin still in me. And I think, how can there be this much sin still in me? Why don't I have more victory? And part of that, I think, is the natural process of Christian growth. The more you grow in the Lord, the more aware of your sin I think you're going to be. And the Holy Spirit, though, has promised to come alongside you and give you that victory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is faithful to that promise? Do you believe that he's strong enough to help you overpower the sin in your life? And then are you living like a person who believes that? Are you getting that victory? If you're not, I don't want to crush you down with guilt or anything. Because like I said with David, I don't think what we're reading about here is David you know, completely turning his back away from the Lord or falling out of the faith, nothing like that. We're seeing David live the Christian life. We still struggle with sin. We still have this flesh, and we're going to be battling it until the day we die. So you shouldn't hear what I'm saying and think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm the worst Christian in the world. You're not, I am. Okay, Let's just get that straight right there. I need grace more than anybody. And praise the Lord that he has offered it to me freely because I still do struggle. And there are times when I lose and I don't tap into the power that the Spirit has offered me, and I fail again and again. But God's grace covers a multitude of my sins, and a multitude of yours as well. But listen, that power is there. That promise is there for you. Do you believe that promise? that God will partner with you in overcoming your sin. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, there's this one thing that I just can't get victory over. It. I'm going to encourage you to come and talk to me. Send me an email, call me, give me a text, whatever, and let's talk about it. Because there is no sin that you're struggling with, no lapse of faith that you might have that the Holy Spirit cannot empower, empower you to overcome. Every single one, God has given you the power and the promise to overcome it. So it's there. You can do it. So let's talk about it. If there's some besetting sin in your life you just can't seem to gain mastery over, believe that God has given you the power to overcome it. And then act like a person who believes that. And if you want some help along the way, let's talk. Let's do that. And as we see from David here in chapters 26 and 27, again, and I'm also not saying you'll never have these mountaintop and, and uh, valley experiences again. You will. You certainly will. We all have them. We all go through them. And as, as we see from David, it's just a matter of time before we go through the next one. But when we go through that next one, we know how to get out of it. Because our God is a God who has made promises, and he is faithful to us, to help us, and to give us that victory. And that's what David's going to see here in these next few chapters, and even off into 2 Samuel as well, 
the Lord is faithful, like he's seen numerous times. And I'm sure you've seen numerous times in your own life. He is faithful. He will deliver me. Draw upon that knowledge and upon those true and faithful promises of God to live victoriously. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are a faithful God and that every word of yours is true. Everything that you have said will come to fruition. Every promise you have made will be kept. Lord, encourage our hearts by this truth and this knowledge that you are the faithful God, keeping your covenant of love to a thousand generations. Lord, there is no need or warrant for us to doubt. There is no need or warrant for us to lapse in our faith. God, walk with us. Keep us on your path because we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God that we love. So Lord, we offer you our hearts this morning. We ask that you would take them and seal them for your courts above. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.